Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling more confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TVD Conference. The theme this season is the real future of work. What's really going on with the world of work under the hood? What's changing? What's not being said? We're checking assumptions, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I spoke with an amazing array of people from Dan Pink to Harvard University professors, TikTok superstars, data specialists and generational experts, all live on Twitter spaces. What follows is a recording of that space, so it's more conference call than podcast booth. Sponsors are incredibly important to me, and I am proud to say Ecology are back, and they planted a tree for every live listener we had. We're over 15,000 trees in the TBD forest now, and you can start planting your own over at ecology.com. That's spelled E-C-O-L-O-G-I dot com. Workplace by Meta also came on board this season. Their familiar features help everyone work together in new ways and whatever you bring to work to help you be you, Workplace celebrates it. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. Check it out. It's very, very cool indeed. Make sure you never miss a moment of Mouthwash by signing up for the newsletter over at mouthwashshow.com. And you can also get a text alert over at mouthwash.norby.live. Very handy for busy people. Check out all those links in the description too. As with all good podcasts, please share it on a network you trust and leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Please enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD Conference. That's the conference attendees say is like Ted without the bullshit. We're flipping it up this season. We're live Tuesdays through Thursdays. You get the same amount of mouthwash, don't worry. We're just spreading it over the middle of the week. It's a reflection of the times and changing world of work, which is our theme for this season, the real future of work. This season, we're exploring what's working, what's not. We're checking our assumptions at the door, checking in on ourselves and also the future. I want to know what's really going on under the surface, where it's all going and how we're going to get there. I have an amazing cohort of people joining me this season, from multiple best-selling authors like Dan Pink to brand new startups who are creating new models for the metaverse. I'm also discussing the future with experts from Harvard University, behavioral psychologists to TikTok superstars. You can check out the full lineup anytime you like over at mouthwashshow.com. There's also full details about everything we've done previous seasons, and you can listen to previous podcast episodes too. I am incredibly proud to say that we are sponsored again this season, this time by the folks over at Workplace by Meta. Whatever you bring to work that helps you be you, Workplace celebrates it. Their familiar features uh, help everyone work together in new ways, so you can take your place of work, make it a great place of work indeed. So check out workplace.com forward slash human, you will find out more. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Um, Ecology is also back. Uh, They plant a tree for every live listener in the space. So uh, do me a favour and share the space when you're in it. We've got over 15,000 trees going at the forest. And if you're looking to reduce your or your business's carbon footprint, head over to ecology.com and you can start planting your forest today. That's ecology.com, E-C-O-L-O-G-I.com. So a different spelling. Now's a great time, as I mentioned, just to share that space. Click that round blue plus button. Let people know that uh, you found something good. Uh, and I think, you know, more trees in the world. I think we'll all agree. No bad thing. So, yeah, get on that button. Um, also, get on that button if you want to ask a question. You can DM me as well or just use the mouthwash show hashtag and we'll pick it up from there. If you click it at the top of the uh, screen, you'll actually it'll do it all for you. So it saves you a lot of typing. 
Okay, my guest tonight, joining me all the way from Vancouver, Canada, is Alexandra Samuel, world-renowned expert on remote work and the digital workplace. She's just written Remote Wink, How to Thrive at Work, Wherever You Are, uh, with co-author Robert Posen, and uh, has also written books for Harvard Business Review and regularly contributes to that tiny industry bible, The Wall Street Journal. Alexandra has uh, worked with Google, Discovery, Sprinkler. She's spoken at multiple companies uh, of the same ilk about future working strategies, data, and uh, lots of stuff around the world of work, um, even before uh, the pandemic hit. So she's well above the curve. Um, she had lots of other stuff, but uh, work on mouthwash, Alexandra. What did I miss out of your bio? <laughs> well, I think the, the only piece you really missed from my bio is that I myself have worked remotely for the majority of the past 25 years, um, at, you know, in different ways at different stages. But I think part of what I've brought to this conversation in the past year or two years has been the experience of juggling remote work with parenting with kids underfoot, because I've done a lot of my remote work while homeschooling one of my kids. And, you know, that's an experience a lot of people were plunged into at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. So that's an interesting place to sort of kick off. I normally ask people what the first thing they thought of when they woke up was today, but we'll get to that. But uh, so 20 years ago, what made you sort of go, I'm working from home, you know, or or, I'm working from this other place that isn't the office? Well, I mean, it was really a function of me moving to Vancouver. I was in the middle of my PhD uh, in, in Boston fell in love with my now husband, moved to Vancouver. And because I was going to be here, I wasn't going to be able to be a TA at Harvard and had to find another way of earning an income while I was in school. I had um, done a little bit of work for a guy named Don Tapscott, who's a kind of e-business at the time. He was known for a book called Paradigm Shift and Digital Economy. And um, Don had been kind of kicking around the idea of doing some work around e-government, which is what my dissertation was related to. And so together, we cooked up this idea for a research program that turned into a multi-client project with 20 governments from around the world. And his company was based in Toronto. I was based in Vancouver. And so I found myself in what was then a very exotic arrangement, um, working from a home office in Vancouver and then going to Toronto every you know, six or eight weeks. Ah, I see. So sort of worlds collided, but needs must as well. Interesting. I, have, I haven't met many people that have worked over 10 years in remote work. And a, lo- a lot in 10 years, people have said from the show. But um, it's one of those things, isn't it? It's like, oh, I could always work from home if I wanted to. I just never did or I never asked to. And it was that sort of unwritten rule. And nobody ever said you've got to be in the office, although we are finding out some people now have to be in the office. Hmm. So we can talk about that a bit later. But it's been an interesting sort of transition. I, I kind of like these periods in history where things have changed massively. Um, I want to talk. Yeah, I want. I want to talk a little bit later about like where it's going and that. What what sort of um, data are you seeing at the moment on on remote working? How many of us are doing it? What are the trends sort of telling you? And where do you think yeah. we go next? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think there are a couple of of fundamental um, data points that people need to have their mind around. And and the first and foremost, honestly, is that remote work isn't as big as we like to think. I mean, if you pick up a business uh, section of any newspaper, you would think the entire world has gone remote. But yeah. the reality is um, only about 40, maybe 50 percent of the population is in jobs that can even remotely be done remotely. <laughs> Most people, mm. you know, you <laughs> And, and and it depends, you know, and that's only in the in in, in industrialized countries. I mean, if you're in a country where 
um, there is not a lot of office work, where there's lot, not a lot of uh, internet access, then rates of remote work are even lower. And even in a country like Canada, only 40% of the population can work remotely because, you know, you can't cut down a tree over Zoom, right? And we have a yeah. very resource-oriented economy. And so I think it's really important when we and I'm guilty of this myself, it's very easy to get all like romantic and utopian about how we're going to reinvent the world of work. But actually, we're reinventing the world of work for the 40% who are already less screwed. And so I'm, I'm yeah. worried about that divide in a very, in a very serious way. Yeah, that, that brings me on to um, sort of talking about the elephants in the room when it comes to remote working. Um, not everyone home's great. Offices aren't being redesigned. Mm-hmm. At least mm-hmm. a third of people, mm-hmm. according to Leesman, don't have the right chair at home. Mm-hmm. Um, apart from a back epidemic, it sort of seems like we're not quite yet getting the basics right. We've been thrust uh-huh. into this new experience. Mm-hmm. But from a generational and socioeconomic um, part that you, you just mentioned, it feels that companies sort of aren't maybe seeing this as a long term play. Is that fair or do you think that they were really reacting and now they're sort of going to snap back? Well, I I mean, I think you've sort of touched on a couple of different points that that we can uh, get into in more detail. One is the fact that um, most people haven't actually experienced remote work yet. They've experienced pandemic work. Totally Ah, different. Totally different. Um, And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that concerns me in, in the latest data is it's been so, so this speaks to the other thing, which is, can employers really just force everyone back to the office? Well, you know, survey after survey has shown the majority of people who are working remotely would like to remain remote the majority of the time. That is to mm. say, three three days a week or more. Um, that number seems to be softening a little. I just saw a survey the other day that suggests that since September, people are, are relenting a little bit in their lack of interest in remote work or lack of interest in returning to the office, that is. Um, but again, I think that's because uh, neither employer nor employees have, for the most part, invested in making remote work its best version. They're still just sort of most of us have endured the nightmare of COVID and the nightmare of pandemic living and haven't really most people don't really understand or haven't really thought about what's different between the pandemic and what remote work could look like in the future. The reality is in a tight labor market, employers um, are gonna have to take their signals from employees, particularly if they want high skill um, talent that you have to compete for. But you know, there's some rumors that we may be heading towards a recession and so all of that could change. Don't mention the R word. Don't mention the R Sorry. word. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm reading that sort of same stuff as well. I, I I thought one one interesting point. I think it was um what was it? I think it was the ladders, um, which is a sort of high net worth individual job board mm-hmm. thing. I think I'm doing them the disservice saying it like that, but it's similar. I know hard <laughs> life, right? Um, but it's um, it, they said that a quarter of all professional jobs in the US and Canada are now permanent remote roles. So that is very different from three mm. years ago. Oh, okay. Go on. I'm I'm sensing unhappiness. Uh, that's that's very high. Um, I I don't I haven't seen any num- credible numbers that are that high. I don't think that's uh, a quarter of all of all jobs are now permanently remote. Uh, all professional jobs. So I think they mean sort of white collar. Mm. Mm. Oh, may- maybe. So if you consider the forty percent, yeah. 40 percent for what I the numbers I've seen are that about 10 percent of the workforce um, is likely to remain remote. So that's a quarter of the 40 percent who can be remote. So, yeah. 
Oh, which is see th- those numbers that you're, you're number. <laughs> no, this is what I mean, and it's this is what I wanted the series to be is is not contrarian views for the sake of contrarian views, but I was like, what's the data showing us right now? We're in panic mode. Some are recreating. Some are still, you know, check their businesses are changing. But it does seem that um, you know a lot of businesses were like, what do you need? We'll get you everything. And then as soon as people can go back to the office, people have been like, right. So when are you back? You know, uh, but those offices now seem to be sort of like not fit for purpose or mm-hmm. you know. It's still dangerous mm-hmm. for a lot of people to go back into mm-hmm. so it gets to that sort of point where you sort of say okay well this remote work stuff how do we how do we increase that 10 percent? what is that the job to do you know do we do mm-hmm. we need more people to go to remote work or is that mm-hmm. going to cause future issues for like cities and you know will businesses by prep go out of business or just do they have to move places so i think it's um you know your, your points that you're putting there about those numbers is it, is it just a matter of time? Is this like a permanent shift or do you think it's going to snap oh, back? Oh, yeah. No, well, so I mean, hard to tell. It, it, I, the 10% um, permanently remote probably won't change a whole lot. But I think it's really, um, it's not really worth getting hung up on that little slice. I mean, 10% is not nothing, mm. but it is, it's a pretty small part of the picture. And that are that 10% are people who are in roles and in and and personally interested in working remote full time. But that's not what most people want. And it's not what most employers want. Um, And it's not really feasible in most roles. So what's what's much more relevant is to talk about um, the 30% of that the 30 to 40 percent of the workforce that is currently working full or part-time remote that is likely or at least potentially going to remain part-time remote um the people who are you haven't been remote during covid then frankly you're not leaving that office until the robot comes and takes over your job like that is just that true. <laughs> yes that's there true, are not yeah. a lot of jobs you know, the jobs that if, if they didn't send you home when being at the office gave you a risk, well, you know, being in the workplace would give you COVID, you're not going to go home now. So half, let's just discount that half of the of the workplace and, re- and recognize that we're leaving half the workforce out of this conversation. And then we're talking about, you know, the majority of those who've been working remotely, which comes to a total of about 30 or 40 percent of the workforce who have consistently expressed a preference for um, part-time remote work in most cases uh, with a with a tilt towards working from home. And this, I think, is the paradigm to focus on for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, now I say this as somebody who has worked full-time remote on and off for many years, but I actually would happily trade um, my liberated existence of full-time remote for a role where I had to be in the office one or two days a week, if dear Lord, it meant I never had to do another Zoom call again. I mean, yes. the, the the beauty of the part-time remote scenario is if we can shift away from this insane existence where people have the worst of both worlds, all the bullshit meeting overload of being in an office and all the isolation of being at home, like that sucks. Um, go to a world where people are in the office and and this does depend on on the office being where you actually find the other people you work with but if you get to use your office days to meet in person collaborate in person actually lay eyes on another person put on pants with a waistband like all these exciting things we used to do and then on the days you're at home 
maybe you don't have any video calls. Maybe you actually get to sit down and like dig into that spreadsheet, dig into that document, go for a walk at 11 o'clock in the morning, just because you feel like it. Those are the freedoms that come from having a split schedule where we get to protect our at-home days precisely because we're now doing our collaboration in person again. Mm-hmm. You talk about that in the book, which I want to talk about later, but let's stay meta for a bit while we sort of got there. You flipped. I was going to do the book first and then go big, but we can, <laughs> we can, I don't mind. I don't mind flipping it up. Um, so I spoke with uh, Rima Bostonian uh, yesterday, sorry, no, Bostonitsen, sorry, I always say that wrong, um, on yesterday's episode. Um, and it was all about workplace culture and how we came to the position that it's sort of harder for remote workers to remain engaged with a company's mission and culture. W- would you agree with that? What, what are the sort of downsides when it comes to remote working from a sort of progression and um, really just like feeling connected sort of standpoint? Is it that everyone's just at home and they're just, you know, you're a cog in the machine or is it up to companies to really sort of devise a new way of working when it comes to promotion? Well, I mean, can we talk separately? I think there are two really separate questions here. One is about yep. the path to promotion and the other is about culture and connection. So let's, which, which of those two do you want to start with? Um, let's do culture and connection because I, I feel like promotion is a big, big one. Yeah. Well, so this, this question of, um, you know, what do you do to create a sense of culture when people are not in the same uh, place. Um, it's a, is a little bit of a red herring for, for two reasons. Um, you know, the first, the first is that I, I think this whole idea of corporate culture and like, we should all be so happy to come to the office and see all our good buddies is, you know, we've kind of been sold the bill of goods. Um, if, if you run organizations on a model where you expect people to spend 40 to 50 hours of their life, the majority of their waking hours in the office on any given week, you had better convince them that they love the people that they work with, that they find meaning and connection from interacting with their colleagues. Um, and that's this, and that that is the center of their kind of intellectual, emotional and professional life mm. because they don't have a lot left for anything else. Um, but you know what? You, it is actually possible to make friends outside the office, particularly if you aren't always at the office. Yes. And, <laughs> um, you know, this was something I had to learn. I was super lonely my first year of remote work. I kind of uh, worked myself into a, a, a depression um, because I worked all the time and I didn't leave um, my desk while people in Toronto, you know, three t- hours ahead of me were, were at theirs. Um, and then I started to notice that when I was in the office in Toronto, you know, people were going out for long lunches um, as a team. They were chit-chatting uh, around the coffee machine. They were lingering before or after meetings. There was all this social interaction. Um, I, I don't want to call it wasted time. It's not wasted time at all. Um, but it isn't productive work task completion either. And so, you know, in my, I realized very quickly that I was getting more done in this very task um, oriented sense of the word in five hours at my desk in Toronto, in Vancouver, I was getting more done than my at the office colleagues were getting done in nine hours um, in Toronto. And so I started to basically give myself water cooler time. But I was able to spend that water cooler time not with whoever happened to be in the coffee room at the same time as me, but with the people I chose to spend time with. So I built my own network of friends and colleagues in Vancouver. It took a little while because I was new to town. But, you know, once you're not in the office all the time, you can get 
connection. You can get community. You can get professional inspiration from all kinds of people, right? The world is full of other humans. Mm. They aren't just the people in your office, but you have to make make that connection. And one of the things that's interesting, by the way, uh, in studies about who thrives when working remotely, counterintuitively, um, it's actually the extroverts. You'd think that the extroverts would be the ones who would, you know, wither and die in the absence of the office life. But they actually do fine. We do fine because we go out and we make our own social world, whereas the introverts are, you know, not going to make that effort. And that is what the office does for them is it kind of mm. in, it's like an instant version of social connection. But what I would say is, um, you know, a lot of what we think of as culture is is kind of like the the kind of milk and cookies of the office. It's like the thing we we build up to sweeten the torture of being at the office all the time. But if you don't need people to be at the office all the time, they can meet their needs for social connection, for meaning in other ways. What you need in in what we traditionally think of as culture is commitment. You want people to care about their work. You want them to be swimming or rowing in the same direction. You want them to feel invested in the shared mission. But that at that point isn't necessarily culture. It is it is mission. It is meaning. It is clarity of vision. It is clarity of purpose. Um, but it isn't about us all being at summer camp and feeling like we need to, you know, sing songs around the campfire every night. Mm. I think that that was where we sort of netted out is that culture is something to be fostered and uh, you should have those deep rooted elements of it that should transcend whether you are in a physical space together or a digital one. And if you or if you've never met, you know, but you agreed to do something together. Um, the, the, the issue is with culture is that people are talking a lot, but they're not doing a lot. And that's where, you know, it breaks down whether you're all together or you're digital, if that makes sense. Um, that's where we netted out. Rightly or wrongly. Um, talk to me about promotion. We wanted to talk to that about that mm -hmm. as well when it comes to remote work. And there's mm -hmm. lots been written about it's harder, it's people are gonna go unnoticed and that. And I can see those arguments. You just sound like you might have a contrarian view on that. Well, I mean, I think the jury is still out. There is some research that suggests that uh when you're out of the office, you are less likely to get promoted. But the problem is that those studies, um, at least the ones I've seen were conducted in the pre-COVID world where the remote workers were the minority. And so they're being left out of a mainstream at the office. It's far less clear to me that that will happen if, you know, you're in an organization where 50, 60, 70 percent of the folks are working out outside the office the majority of the time. I am much more concerned. I have to say, much I'm much less concerned, frankly, about the promotion opportunities of, of remote workers and far more concerned about the advancement opportunities of the people who are in those not yet remote friendly jobs. Because what I what I observe in it, particularly in younger folks, and if you think about, you know, mixed organizations where there's a warehouse operation or a frontline service operation or a retail operation and then the sort of back office team. Um, you know, we see very clearly in the data that there are significant uh, uh, demographic differences between the front line and the back office, right? The people in those office jobs that were able to be done remotely during COVID tended to be, were more likely to be white, were more likely to be more educated. This is why, you know, communities of color were disproportionately affected by COVID because, you know, if you're working in a restaurant, there's no calling in. And so you're more likely to get sick. And my concern is that, um, when 
the back office staff were still on site coming into the office, making those site visits. They were in regular contact with the more junior, more frontline staff and serving as mentors, serving as pathways, teaching people kind of how to get up that next step on the ladder. And particularly, you know, you see professionals of color mentoring younger people of color. And like, those are really important pathways to advancement. Mm. You take all the back office people out of the in-person environment, or you have them there only one or two days a week where they're in back-to-back meetings, and there's no time to chit-chat with the, you know, guy in the printing room or whatever it is, you know, the junior folks who are there day in and day out. Um, Suddenly, you've cut off that pathway to advancement, particularly since, you know, you're hiring for professional roles now where people are expected to work on Slack, on Teams, on Zoom. Are you hiring people into those roles when they've never had a job that involved working remotely? Or are you going to look for people who've already had that background? And so I'm worried we're looking at a a future where we have a very starkly divided workforce with fewer and fewer pathways to move from service work, on-site work, manufacturing work, to higher earning, more flexible, remote-friendly jobs. Mm. That that's something that definitely isn't getting the column inches. I think that it nope. deserves. It's I'm working um, on it. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I fully support. Let me know if I can retweet and all of that. Um, that it is an interesting point of view because, like you say, uh, the pandemic has disproportionately um, affected people of color and those you know um, different groups. It does seem that whenever I see data and anything like that, they're, they're asking the wrong people the questions, it feels like. A lot of it, it, it tends to be, you know, hi, you were in the office, so we asked you, you know, that sort of thing, those sort mm-hmm. of longitudinal studies. When it comes to people getting the real deal, which we're trying to get this season on the future of work, what are your North Star things that you're looking at? So, you know, I, I for example, looked at what is the percentage of um, job uh, what do you call it, descriptions that, that mention the word remote, you know, and that sort of thing. Obviously, mm. they're going up, but not for every industry, it seems. You know, technology definitely sort of seems to be leading the way when it comes to remote working. Uh, and it's definitely been more successful in there because I feel like they, all those tools that you just mentioned and workplace as well, th- those ones sort of, it's almost accepted that you use it, whereas most other companies probably didn't use those tools before, um, you know, the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think that says about how businesses viewed remote working before the pandemic, but also how committed they are to it now? Well, I mean, I think there's a huge uh, range and it and so much depends on the nature of the business and the nature of the of the industry. Um, you know, in general, tech companies have been quicker to uh, embrace an an all remote model. And, you know, we've seen a number of tech companies say explicitly, we're not bringing people back. Although, you know, Microsoft's bringing people back. There are plenty of tech companies that are. But I think part of that is just that like, and and this long predates COVID, right? Which is not, I mean, I personally am never happier than when I get to try a new piece of software and add, you know, yet another app to my workflow. But I recognize that the world is not made up of people whose idea of a fun Friday night is, you know, let me download 10 different task management applications and see which one I like. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, you know, for the normals um, who just want to actually do the work and not spend the majority of their time learning the software, um, you know, it's it, remote work is pretty frustrating and there's a lot of friction because frankly, like remote work, another way of saying remote work is really to say online work. 
And some of us really love spending all our time in our computer. Like I seriously just mm. want to spend all my time on my computer. I hate that I have to move my body or I feel sick. Um, and, <laughs> and so, you know, if that's the kind of person you are, then um, remote work is like a more congenial environment. And of course, if you're a tech company, you're going to have more nerds like me who are super happy to use 45 different tools and spend all their time touching their keyboard. Whereas like in other kinds of industries, um, not everybody is like a super geek who wants to spend all their time online. And, and, you know, those personal and temperamental differences have a huge impact. And so I think part of um, what we're going to see is a, is a bit of a shakeout. One, one of the things I think is, is really interesting and surprising in this challenge is that, my, again, kind of counterintuitively, I thought um, that younger people were going to be the ones who wanted to come back to the office for social purposes. But I think mm. exactly for the reason I just mentioned, namely kind of relative levels of tech comfort, younger people are like, yeah, I'm happy to spend my whole career online. I'm happy to do all my work online. I don't need to go to an office. And so I do think that companies that are reluctant to embrace remote um, flexible models are going to age. Um, and have a hard time bringing younger people into the workforce. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Leeson, uh, sorry, Leesman, um, Tim Oldman, CEO, uh, he, he mentioned that there is an inflection point happening at the moment when it comes to young and old. It used to be that old people wanted to go back to the office. Uh, sorry, young people wanted to go back to the office. Mm -hmm. And now they're seeing that opposite inflection. They, and yeah. we didn't know why at that time. I, I hypothesize that is a very good reason why a lot of people basically had had enough time of being at their bed sit with five yeah. of their friends. You know, it's fun to start well, with. And now it's it. not. And but they say now the opposite that older gen had come back to the office and they go actually this wasn't as great as I thought you know that sort of yeah, thing yeah, and I can yeah. do everything I need to do from the comfort of my home without the commute. Um, I'm always wondering how much what percentage of the future of work is just to do with people hating the commute and maybe we just need to fix that. But the more I sort of delve into it, it depends on the office mm -hmm. that you worked with. How horrible was the wallpaper? You know that you had to stare at. Um, I and the loneliness, need to, hmm. like the isolation. I really think. Um, the idea that I'm, I'm always struck when I give these talks, um, the, the pieces that really seem to resonate with people is the revelation that you don't have to work for eight hours a day at your home office just because you would work eight hours a day at, at work. You can get more done in less time and use that, reclaim your water cooler time for the people you want to spend it with. Mm -hmm. And also... Um, the idea that you haven't really experienced remote work yet if you've only done it in a pandemic. And so to me, like the, my number one recommendation for everybody in the next year is like do what you can to avoid committing to full-time office work and, and even to avoid committing to majority office work until you have experienced remote work outside of the worst of the pandemic and experimented with bringing more social interaction into your life with your own um, purpose and intentions. And I think that that's what younger people are good at is like working in coffee shops, right? And all these kids who grew up like doing all their school essays in cafes with Wi-Fi are now doing their jobs in cafes with Wi-Fi, right? Bringing their laptops into a coffee shop. It is hard when you don't have space at home. But precisely because they're not at home, because there's no good place to work, they're going out, finding other places to work and not getting isolated the way us old people with the luxury of a third bedroom um, can stay at home, do all of our work and never see another human being.
Yeah. I am still surprised, shocked, amazed, bewildered why Starbucks hasn't said, oh, and we're implementing a little co-working section in our coffee shops. Because people are doing it anyway. You might as well make well, it even better for them, get them to stay, you know, get them to pay a they bit do. more money. Well, oh, I mean, what, they've already got co-working? Well, what, what, I mean, it sort of depends. I've seen different versions. So there's a coffee shop here in Vancouver um, mm. that has a bookable, a bookable meeting room within the coffee shop that, that has a closed door where you can go and, and use it for a meeting. And um, is that a Starbucks I, or is that just a regular nope. coffee shop? It's a, it's called blends. It's like, a, oh, it's right, like okay. a local, a local version. It's, you know, a local chain, very similar to Starbucks. They'll be yeah. horrified to hear me say that. Um, <laughs> you know, I see, and I see, t- you know, lots and lots of, of coffee shops um, that will have designated computer friendly and no computer areas yes, specifically that. so that there's like clear signals. So, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that that the idea of the coffee shop as third space is all was already very well established before COVID. I, mm. I, my own, like one of my own greatest heartbreaks of COVID is that my home away from home coffee shop closed early in the pandemic because of the you know shutdown. And oh. um, I miss them desperately, but I think there's going to be incredible opportunity and, and the kind of thing you're describing of like even more intentional models um, so much opportunity for pe- for people to create, you know, very co-worker friendly spaces. Mm. I hope so. It doesn't obviously it doesn't have to be Starbucks and be anyone and every, anyone can be a co-working space. It's just got to, you know, a, probably mm-hmm. a print, a printer and secure Wi-Fi would probably do it for most people. But I, I think there a are. A printer? You know, what year are we here? Hey, no judgment. I have had to print so much stuff out during the pandemic for some what? random reason. I Yeah, I, I deplore it all. I'm not going to lie. Uh, apart from it okay. being not very environmentally friendly, I'm sort of like, oh, is this the world I want to live in? And no, I just want to send things digitally. <laughs> but anyway, um, let's talk about the book. I really enjoyed it. It's absolutely brimming with tips, uh, strategies. I can see why Ariana Huffington is a, uh, a fan. Um, it's really practical, offers a sort of uh, a guiding light. I think that's the way that I sort of thought about it. I was like, this is really sort of like selling it to me, but not in a way that's like overselling it. It was very sort of realistic and making it all workable. And I really sort of like that. You um, you start out in the book talking about becoming a business of one. It's a big part of the whole ethos of the book. Mm-hmm. Can you explain what you mean by that and why it's so important yes yes well so uh you know i should clarify that my co-author um bob posen uh, he's the author of a previous well quite a few previous books but he has a fabulous productivity book called extreme productivity um but he also had a whole life running you know big organizations including fidelity investments um and you know i kind of had the opposite career mostly working you know either running my own company or or as a solo entrepreneur And as we were kind of comparing the challenges and experiences we'd had working remotely, um, we realized how much the most successful approach to remote work resembles more like that experience of being an entrepreneur than what the way you need to think about your job when you're going to the office every day in a large organization. And that's because, you know, when you're working in a large organization, there's a thousand cues that you get literally from walking in the front door, the people around you, the way the space is laid out, all these things that kind of keep you on the path and help you structure your day. When you're working from home, in a very real sense, you are a one person shop. You are, you know, you may have phone calls all day long with your colleagues, but none of those other contextual cues are there to help you organize your time or keep focus. 
And so what we recommend is really leaning into that and saying, you know what, I'm going to think of myself like a one person business. And I'm going to think of my boss as a client that I just want to totally wow. And I'm going to think of my colleagues as, you know, well, depending on the context, either they're my suppliers, I'm their suppliers, you know, it kind of depends. And what happens when you do that is subtle but important. Um, if your boss says to you, uh, I want to talk to you um, about this project and I've put, a, uh, I've put a call in our schedule for 10 a.m. tomorrow, will you just show up at 10 a.m. tomorrow? But I will tell you it is the rare client who is um, that bossy. What your client will do is say, hey, I need to talk to you sometime in the next couple of days about this project. Um, can you shoot me a few times that work for you? And it's a subtle difference, but it really matters because when you have that level of authority over how you're using your time, um, you are in a better position to organize your workflow, organize your days, organize your time in, in order to really deliver your best work. Mm. Um, if, if you're still operating, like, you know, your boss says, jump and you jump, you can't really tap the benefits of remote work for like building on your own schedule, diving into focused work at the times that really work for you, um, organizing your time so you do see other humans and don't get super depressed. Um, and, you, and you need to find a mindset to carve out that kind of autonomy in order to really do a good job when you're working alone at home. And that business of one framework, that way of thinking of yourself as if you're an entrepreneur with a client um, we find is a really helpful reframing tool for people to just subtly but crucially shift the way they think about their jobs when they're working from home. Mm. I, I really liked it. It was something that sort of struck a chord with me. I've worked for myself for God nigh on 10 years probably. And um, I never thought of it in that sort of way as a sort of, you know, way of sort of being. And it, it just sort of, it really struck a chord with me. So I thought I would bring it up. Um, it, a lot of what you're saying and what I've heard on this season, it sort of goes, there's that trust thing again. It's that trust thing mm. again. Mm -hmm. So whether it's communication between people, they don't trust each other to have an honest conversation, or whether it's, hi, I'm uh, installing some keyboard, uh, what do you call it, key tapping Oh, God, yes. Security key stuff. Keylogging, that's the word. Thank you. Um, that, or it's, um, oh, yes, uh, you know, we're looking at the data from this tool and it shows us that you might be feeling depressed, which allegedly is what the AI is going to be predicting in the future. God knows that's terrifying, but also possibly good. Who knows? Mm. Um, it it also, also comes down to sort of productivity, right? So you've got, let's say, the person in the office wanting productivity coming out the whizang, and then you've got the person on the other end who doesn't want to be whipped. In the middle, you've got a happy, hopefully medium and no whips mm -hmm. involved, right? I keep mm -hmm. hearing that it's 54% of people say that when they work remotely, they feel more productive. That's the feel word, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. However, I, I still have found no data to say that people are more productive remote working. Do you think that's unfair to sort of say? Do you have any data on that or anything like that? Well, I mean, we... we um data we gathered some of that kind of self-reported data as well um and and actually we saw an even more significant uh shift towards people what we what we saw that i thought was interesting and we saw this in multiple data sets is that the longer people have worked remotely the more likely they are to experience productivity gains at least self self-reported productivity gains from working remotely because you know working remotely is a learned skill you got to figure out these things like leaving the house and 
turning down meetings that are not going to be good use of your time Mm. and, you know, setting aside big windows of time for focused work. Like those are all skills or strategies you learn over time. Um, You know, it's a really good question. I, I can't think of anything that, you know, I would consider quote unquote objective, but I I think I'm just forgetting. I feel like there have been some measures. I, I, I guess the concern I have is I think productivity is a, is a little bit of a problematic construct in and of itself. And, and, you know, there's a reason why we have, you know, there's this mystery in economic terms, right. Of why haven't we seen productivity gains from automation over the past few decades, right. Mm. Everybody scratches their head of like, how is it that the advent of computerization hasn't really yielded productivity gains? And there are various explanations for that. But I mean, I do think part of the problem is that we tend to think our, our way of thinking about productivity is with an implicit denominator, namely um, output over hours, right? What are you getting done in an hour? And, um, and we think of our, you know, what we owe our employers is eight hours. And therefore, um, you know, ultimately, it's no skin off my nose if I get, um, you know, a little bit of work done in eight hours or a lot bit of work done in eight hours. And where this all has the potential to um, create, you know, a win-win situation is when we stop thinking of what we owe our employer in hours and think of it in outcomes. Because um, if you can get your quote unquote eight hours of work done in four hours, why should your employer care if you take the afternoon off and go out with a friend Um, You know, how is that a worse use of your time than being in four hours of pointless meetings or yakking at the water cooler and quote unquote building culture by being in the office? Like Mm. this is the this is the fundamental shift that we need to get away from. And I'm having a little like epiphany because it all comes back to what I had originally wanted to do my dissertation about 100,000 years ago, which is (laughs) um, like our whole model of of the billable hour and productivity is based on what happened in the industrial revolution, which is we yeah. went from artisanal production to factory production. Somebody spent a bucket of money setting up a factory built, you know, buying all this equipment. And now we want to maximize the utilization of our equipment. But that scenario where we were, where you have multiple people working on one machine has been fully reversed. And now we're back to something that in many if you are working remotely it's because your style of work looks more like 17th century artisanal production than 19th century industrial production because you are one person on one machine just like it used to be one blacksmith one forge and so you know is is it a terrible waste of your company's resources if your 700 hundred dollar chromebook is going unused 18 hours a day no it is not it is far more important to the company that you, your brain, your powers, your talent is at its peak. And if that means that you spend four hours of your day exercising, socializing, whatever, and then you kill it for four hours, four hours of a brilliant employee is easily worth nine hours of an uninspired grinder. Oh my God, you're preaching to the converted and I love that. And, and all of that, <laughs> that story is in the book and it's explained a lot more and that sort of stuff. Um, oh, yes. Right. Okay. So, um, all right. I want to talk about a couple more things in the book and then another couple of questions and then we'll do the Desert Island tweet. God, I wish this could have been two hours. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, 
you've mentioned um, meetings, the M word, the dreaded M word, um, oh. and turning down meeting requests. You 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 talk a lot about that in the book, and it's very good sort of tips. It's hard though if you're not senior in the business to often do that. You know, whether it's fear mm-hmm. of missing out, fear of annoying people, and that sort of stuff. What tips? You, you you seem like you've got that down, and you can do it in a finger snap. You know, what what tips do you have for uh, shall we say lesser mortals when doing that yeah, sort of stuff? Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. You know, you can easily get hours back of your day just by turning down three mm-hmm. meetings. You know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll start with Bob's favorite tip, which is has changed my life, and I think it's really a useful one. Basically, he does two things. One is um, always have an agenda for the meeting. If there's no agenda for a meeting, what the hell are you doing going to it? Like that's an yeah. organizational norm, but you can also ask it of everyone who puts a meeting in your calendar. And then also um, for every meeting in your schedule, he does what he, what he calls a two-sided calendar where every meeting in his schedule, he has written down for himself. Don't put it in the notes field unless you're using a very unusual uh, calendar because your notes field is visible to everyone. But like, what is it you're trying to get out of the meeting, right? So like, you know, what is, if this is in your calendar, you should know why you're in the meeting. Maybe you're there to help someone else, but there has to be a reason for you being there. And mm-hmm. that discipline of an agenda and a reason for the meeting is like step one is just get yourself in the habit of clarifying why you're even in these meetings. Let's say that you've done that practice and you now recognize there's a lot of stuff on your calendar that you don't want to do. How the heck do you get out of it? Not always easy, but I have two strategies that I find really help. Numero uno is I have a whole bunch of email signatures that are basically variations on no, because it takes a lot of like emotional and cognitive overhead to figure out how to not say yes and how to Mm. decline a meeting but if you have like you know alex's greatest hits you know seven different ways to decline a meeting which i think we actually have more or less in the book somewhere then you basically keep all of those no messages saved as signatures in your email program and you use you reply to the meetings you're turning down with one of those signatures and just customize it a little bit and by having it pre-drafted it just makes it so much easier to say no because you kind of know you have a bunch of different ways of saying no. Um, in in the case of a of a supervisor, one of the one of those signatures can be essentially, um, okay, so you want me to do this. Here's this other thing we've agreed is my top priority for this week. Um, if I'm in this meeting, this other thing is going to be that you've told me is my priority is going to be compromised. Can you tell me which of these two things? is more important. So basically force your manager to be explicit about the trade-offs they're asking you to make. And if it's not your manager, I am a huge fan of of giving people homework before I say yes to them. So if somebody says, um, can you come in, can you join us for this meeting next week? We're going to be brainstorming ideas for our new marketing campaign. I'll say, um, uh, yeah, I'd love to be helpful. I know that you know, I'm only going to be helpful in the meeting if I have seen your um, campaign brief first. Um, and, and if it answers these three questions, can you send me a brief and let me know these three questions so I can think about it before the meeting? And I will tell you, in my experience, probably two thirds of the time, people can't be bothered to do their homework. And then you have an excuse <laughs> to say no, because they haven't done the thing that you said you needed in order to be useful. 
And those are just two of the amazing insights that are also in the book. And I would say, get the book. Just don't don't, don't, <laughs> don't deal with get the book. There are so many good sort of things. The other there's one I'll talk about rather than asking you a question. But it was something that I've sort of done, but not in this way. And it just made me think like, Jesus, I'm, I, you could use that in so many different ways. So you were talking about communication in the book and it was about email and the obligatory Zoom calls. And um, one tip that you had in there, it was that the world needs to adopt more using Google Docs more or a similar tool that's out there. Um, to, to, to gather feedback most people are using it on email mm-hmm. ccing like oh. 20 people and then like they're just you know getting 20 emails and people say i don't understand the question and that sort of stuff but if you use it as a google doc it just felt like and you get you know here's two paragraphs it's just a, a massive better use of your time but also uh-huh. other people's time to fill it out and that sort of thing so and it also trains people to think about things rather than to hit, hit reply straight away uh-huh. so that was that was the one tip so thank you for doing that well, definitely has intrigued me for sure And if we're going to talk about Google Docs, I mean, it's funny, I wrote this massive article a few years ago, I for medium, they commissioned me to do the complete guide to Google Drive. And I think it's a 20,000 word story with 100 different uses for Google Drive. So I love Google and I love Google Docs. That said, um, I run most of my life on what I think of as like Google 2.0, which is Coda, which is if you use Airtable or Notion, Coda is a little bit similar. Um, Mm. And essentially, it it solves a lot of the problems with Google Docs, because instead of having, you know, 14 different Google Google Docs, you're sharing with the same team of people, you have one Coda document where all your spreadsheets, all your documents, all your text is in one place. And I am like, so I'm like such a super fan, and I use it for everything. And, you know, I, I part of what I think is so powerful about Coda and tools like Coda is that in this era where we're now working online so much of the time, there's really no one size fits all tool for every organization. And so, you know, what's exciting to me is this next generation of tools that allow every team, every organization, every professional to build their own work environment, even if they're not coders. Yeah, I I think the tools that we're getting now are sort of like the first generation, aren't they? And certainly as we move in, to using virtual worlds and that sort of stuff. Um, We are so close to time and I don't want to take up more of your time because you are important and you have more things to do. So uh, today (laughs) I'm I'm ending my day in that. Thank you. I'm glad it has been fun today. It always is to sort of hear smart people about what they're passionate about. So thank you for that. Um, So I'm interviewing um, hundo.careers later. They, uh, in the season, they are um, helping young people build careers and new business models in the metaverse. What's your take Mm. on the metaverse and the future world of work? I'm asking everyone in the season, you know, what's their take? Uh, You know, some people want legs, some people don't. Uh, Some people think I'm going to buy stock in Zoom. Where where do you want it to go? You know, it's funny. A friend of mine was just saying the other day that, uh, you know, she's having a hard time getting excited about the metaverse because she'd been excited about Second Life and, you know, once bitten, twice shy. And that's kind of where I'm at. Like we we got way too excited about Second Life early in our business. And I have like a, you know, sad backstory about investing money in a Second Life project that never came to fruition. And, you know, I spent like a ridiculous amount of time in Minecraft, which is also in some ways a kind of metaverse experience because Mm. homeschooling my kid, we did a lot of stuff together in Minecraft. And I mean, I don't know. I, I just feel like, um, you know, I kind of feel I, I'm going to seem like a total left turn, but I eat a strict keto regime, very, very low carb. 
And one of the things that's fascinating to me about the keto world is there's like the keto version of everything. There's like keto muffins, keto ice cream, keto like, and I'm like, you know what, if you want to eat muffins and ice cream, don't be keto, eat carbohydrates. Mm. I don't, I don't want the fake version of the really good bread. I just am not going to eat bread. And I kind of feel like that about the metaverse, which is if you want to be in person with other people, be in person with other people. If you want to have a, a different kind of interaction, then, um, you know, they're all like, I love this. I love being in a text first environment. That's half of what I love about um, social media, frankly, or have loved about social media. And it's kind of lost me as it's moved towards audio and video and, um, and image. I, our effort to simulate the the three-dimensional world online, um, I mean, Uncanny Valley notwithstanding, mm. you know, we're going to be on the far side of Uncanny Valley for a long time. That is to say, it's going to be a long time till we get to the point where the metaverse is so close to our experience of offline reality that it creeps us out. And so I would just say, like, let the internet be the <laughs> the bread-free... <laughs> version of interaction <laughs> don't try and like fake it um you know I, I but but of course um you know i i, I think it is those experiences are going to come along there are going to be uh, versions that are their own thing and aren't like the fake bread version of offline interaction uh i i just haven't i i i haven't yet been able to muster up a lot of excitement about it yeah, it's interesting as well, because every like when you talk about the metaverse, people go, oh, yeah, it's going to be really interesting. And then all the tech people have been showing you, um, yeah, we've recreated offices and don't they look similar? Right. And you go, right. but why did you go that way? Why didn't you say you're going to be working on a cloud today, you know, and like your, pe your people, when they want you, they're going to fly in on a cloud. Why have you gone this so boring, trying to recreate mm -hmm. something that people were, mm -hmm. no one's desperate to get back to a boring office. It, it made me laugh that, no. again, they've failed at that point of selling it in like you've got it we get it we love it but what you're showing us makes me not want what you're selling you know so it'll be well, interesting though i love the technology that they're doing like see-through keyboards you know the potential's there i see what they're going for whoops oh did i lose you i'm brief just briefly i'm back oh brilliant um right okie doke so thank you for that i i am yeah i'm intrigued uh to see it but yeah and second life's still around kicking you know doing good things oh, as well Lord. so check it out you know um hey you know there are positive and negative <laughs> in everything they say right yeah um, oh yeah okay folks as we as ever we end with the uh, desert island tweets the part of mouthwash where the guest picks a tweet or two that has changed their mind or way of thinking in some way um so if you turn your attention to the nest if you're listening in live um i have put up a tweet there by kyle marquise uh, and you can follow him or her i'm not quite sure which at mu chava that's m-o-o-c-h-a-v-a -O -O and the tweet reads yearly reminder unless you're over 60 you weren't promised flying cars you were promised an oppressive cyberpunk dystopia here you go why did you pick this one <laughs> Well, it actually builds on our metaverse conversation quite nicely. It does, um, doesn't it? I, I'm like, I'm Charlie Brown and the football man. I have had my heart broken by promise of the internet over and over and over again for 30, well, gosh, going on 40 years. Mm. Um, I, I told it to 
sci-fi nerd. I, I buy the flying cars vision. Um, I, it's what I thought Second Life would be. It's what I thought Facebook would be. It's what I thought Twitter would be. It's what I thought blogging would be. And look at what we've made of it. Have, have we made the, like, I, I, I loved, I loved the early internet. I loved social media. And yet we have really turned it into a billboard, a tool of mass manipulation. Um, we, we are like, forget the Terminator, forget, you know, the robot overlords. We are the robot overlords and we're mm-hmm. terrible at it. We're terrible we're, we're using these technologies to tear each other apart, to tear our democracies apart, um, to tear our societies apart. And I, I love that tweet because it speaks to the peril of being um, such a tech fetishist, which I am, that you fall into the illusion of utopianism when everything we see suggests that um, humans uh, have a have a terrible tendency to turn these technologies against ourselves. Yeah, I I too have also wanted things to be better for a long time. I'm not going to lie; I've been promised as well. But yeah, it's, mm-hmm. hey, it's not all bad. I see green shoots everywhere all the time, and you know, yes. you never know when things take yes. off. And we've gone through a period yes. of massive change. You never know, and that's the thing. But yeah, when people talk to me about the metaverse and stuff like that, I get excited because it's exciting and new and shiny, and that's the thing. But then I say, have you looked at the numbers of VR headsets? You know, and that's the thing. And they go, it's mm-hmm. not quite where you're going to get it. Most people are going to be looking at it through their phones. Is that a sexy experience that you want to give mm-hmm. them? You know. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, a good answer and a good tweet to end. Like you said, good segue as well. Um, okay, that is a wrap on episode 12 of season four. Uh, my thanks to Alexandra Samuels for making the uh, world of remote working clearer, exciting, and also giving a contrarian view, which isn't always what, uh, you know, is easy to do. So, you know... You know where to go if you want to know about remote working, but also buy the book Remote Inc. How to Thrive at Work Wherever You Are, uh, sold wherever good books are sold. And uh, you can find out more about Alexandra over at alexandrasamuel.com, all one word. Um, Alexandra, any final words of advice for listeners when it comes to success in the world of remote work? Well, I, I really would like to bookend what I just said about, you know, our, our dystopian moment, which is exactly what you point out. We are at a moment of, of really historic change. It's extraordinary to see 40% of the world shift to remote working virtually overnight. And with that sudden change comes the opportunity to reinvent what work is going to look like for the next generation. And that opportunity to create work that is more humane, more inclusive, more sustainable, more meaningful. Um, it's just too good an opportunity to waste, which is why, you know, I think all of us need to see ourselves as co-founders of a new world of work and, and let that vision guide the way we approach um, how we move forward in our organizations. I love that. I love that. Yeah, you've never got a better chance to change your business or how the business that you're in works. So definitely, definitely agree. Okay, up next on Mouthwash is Dr. Eliza Philby, generational expert. We're going to be talking about you, your co-workers, how you can uh, manage each other's expectations and get along better. So I urge you to tune in. It's going to be feisty if my research on her is anything to go by. 
Um, head over to mouthwash.norby.live and you'll get a text so you don't miss a minute. That's mouthwash.norby.live. Mouthwash is produced by Suze and the team at Big Tent Media. Use them for all your audio needs. As always, everything Mouthwash, even the text alerts, can be found over at mouthwashshow.com. That's mouthwashshow.com, all one word. Um, I'm a firm believer that you do not remember the days, we remember the moments, and I hope this has been one for you. It certainly has for me. Um, I'm Paul Armstrong. This is Mouthwash. Listen in again soon for more fresh chat that leaves you more confident. Thanks for listening to Mouthwash. Please share it in a network you trust and check out our sponsors. Season 4 of Mouthwash was sponsored by Workplace by Meta. The easy-to-use features at Workplace help people work together in new ways. To make your place of work a great place to work, visit workplace.com forward slash human. That's workplace.com forward slash human. Have a great day.